Hello, my name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. We are very lucky today to have Francino Pornicula um, give us a talk about bilateral vestibular hypofunction. So Francino, I would like you to introduce yourself and give a little bit of a background. Sure. Um, thanks for having me here, Rachel. My name is Francino Porcincola. I'm a physical therapist specialized in vestibular rehab. My experience in vestibular rehab has been based primarily on previous outpatient practice, where I typically saw 50 to 70 percent vestibular patients um, in a given caseload. I've also practiced in acute and home care settings where I was involved in both um, clinical and education-related activities pertaining to vestibular rehab. I received my Doctor of Science degree in physical therapy from the University of Maryland, where my capstone was focused on bilateral vestibular hypofunction. I am currently in my fourth year of doctoral training in motor learning and control at Teachers College, Columbia University, with research focused on gait and attentional control in Huntington's disease and healthy aging. Great. Well, um, first thing I want to talk about is what are some common disorders which result in a bilateral hypofunction, and what would the medical treatment be of those disorders? Sure. So um, BVH is clinically heterogeneous, but I think before I am going to discuss the, the, the various etiologies, I would like to define um, BVH first. Great. So BVH is um, it's a, a condition where there is um, bilateral reduction of vestibular function due to a lesion on um, the labyrinths or vestibular nerves or a combination or sometimes in the rare event there is a lesion of the VOR pathways in the brain stem. We prefer to use the, the term hypofunction over loss because not all cases of BVH have complete loss or, or some of them have an incomplete one. So going back to the etiology or to the common disorders which um, may result in BVH, um, most of the causes are idiopathic, but the most commonly identified cause is autotoxicity. Now aminoglycosides are notorious in um, negatively affecting the hair cells in the inner ear. Um, aminoglycosides are bactericidal drugs that are usually used in um, managing very strong infections such as um, Pseudomonas or Enterobacter infections. Gentamicin is one of the most common causes of severe BVH. Um, the hair cells are susceptible to the toxic effect of gentamicin and it results in a death of hair cells. Now hair cells or human hair cells do not regenerate, therefore persons with BVH are left with this um, chronic condition. Persons with um, gentamicin autotoxicity do not typically have hearing loss. Um, the other aminoglycoside um, drugs that are known to cause autotoxic reactions are tarbromycin, streptomycin. Neomycin is one where there is um, hearing loss because neomycin is also cochleotoxic. Um, other drugs that can cause BVH are the chemotherapy drugs, particularly cisplatin, um, and carboplatin can also be autotoxic. I want to point out that there are some uh, medications that are um, that, that can induce temporary autotoxicity such as loop diuretics and aspirin. And I think these medications are worth noting when evaluating a patient because these medications can further amplify the BVH-related symptoms. 
Um, there are other causes of BVH that are non-autotoxic. There are more BVH-related. Um, an example would be uh, bilateral vestibular neuritis. Um, this primarily affects the superior vestibular nerve, and it usually spares the inferior vestibular nerve. So the classic lab finding for this is that there is absent or near-complete loss of the horizontal canals um, per rotary chair testing or calorics, but there is some um, robust dents for, for the secular function or for the, for the inferior vestibular nerve. Um, BVH can also be caused by bilateral labyrinthitis or autoimmune diseases such as Kogan's disease, um, meningitis, bilateral Meniere's disease, or um, neoplastic conditions such as acoustic neuromas, which is very rare to have it on both sides. Um, BVH can also be caused by other associated conditions that are more central in, in pathology, such as cerebellar lesions. Um, it has been found in, in one of the largest studies on BVH where they looked at um, close to 255 patients. They found that a fourth of these patients have cerebellar um, pathology. Um, another huge group, so BVH is mostly um, idiopathic. Um, the idiopathic type of BVH, it's a specific clinical entity where there is progressive vestibular dysfunction in both ears without associated hearing loss, and it's typically diagnosed um, based on the evidence of damage of both um, lateral um, horizontal canals. Um, and lastly, I just want to point out that BVH can also be um, part of a diabetes-related related complication. Um, it has been found in, in rats where they, there was um, an experimentally induced diabetes that there were microangiopathic changes in the vestibular nerves and the end organs, and this ha there has been some evidence in humans too that the vestibular system is affected in the event of uh, diabetes. Well, that is a lot of interesting causes. I think automatically when I think bilateral hypofunction, I always think about the autotoxic drugs, but um, not as much thinking about the bilateral diseases or even really interesting highlighting the impact of diabetes and microangiopathy. But it makes total sense because those arteries are very small, and that's where you're going to see a lot of the diabetic complications. Yep, that's right. Um, there's a lot of causes for BVH, but I think the main um, the, the most common causes are going to be the, the, the idiopathic ones and the autotoxic. But yeah, it, it's good to have that awareness that diabetes can also um, cause BBH. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about the epidemiology. If you're looking at a, a group of vestibular patients, how many on average would present with hypofunction? How prevalent is it? What are some of the numbers out there associated with it? So based on clinical practice, um, well, BVH is, is not a very common um, disorder. Um, if, if we're looking at the, uh, the, the group of patients that we're seeing with vestibular disorders, um, in fact, only 1% to 2% of those who undergo ENG studies have BVH. Um, however, some authors have proposed that BVH might be under-recognized, especially in patients who have um, disequilibrium, particularly in elder, elderly patients who have nonspecific balance disorders. 
Um, it is worth noting that there is a decline in hair cells across the lifespan, and about a third to a half of these hair cells are gone by the age of 80. So a person, but a person can still be functional given the amount of hair cell loss, but it becomes debilitating when other sensory systems are impaired. This just underscores that um, it is important to assess um, um, vestibular function, especially in our elderly population. So based on subspecialty practice, it has been reported that BVH is prevalent in one in every 50 patients. This is according to Hain in 2013. Now there was a recent uh, epidemiology study by Ward et al. in 2013 looking at the results of the National Health Interview Survey in 2008, and they found that among 21,000 respondents, 12 respondents had consistent reports with that of someone who has chronic disabling um, severe BVH. Now adjusting that to the national point prevalence, so there it translates to 28 per 100,000 individuals or approximately 64,000 adults with BVH in the United States. So it's a lot. We, we think it's rare, but possibly um, more prevalent than we initially thought it was. Um, BVH is a disorder of the older middle age um, group and there is slight female preponderance in terms of uh, you know, gender distribution. Yeah, and I would agree with that um, probably going undiagnosed part. I know I get a lot of referrals for older individuals that are just having idiopathic balance loss, and mm -hmm. all the prescription says is multifactorial disequilibrium. And I find very often, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I find very often at these patients that they have a positive head thrust test bilaterally. So I'm very suspicious of some kind of um, a bilateral hypofunction in those patients. That's right, and um, just based on clinical practice, I rarely get a, a script which says bilateral loss. We usually find it out just with a diagnosis of uh, just, as you have said, nonspecific balance problems. Mm -hmm. So speaking of some of the tests, what are some common tests which are performed, um, both physical therapy tests and um, ENG, VNG uh, tests in a patient who has a bilateral, bilateral hypofunction? So I'm going to start with uh, some of the physiologic tests that are being used to diagnose um, BVH. Um, rotary chair testing is the current gold standard in BVH, BVH testing. Um, as we know, this is a test for the horizontal canals. Um, the usual findings during low-frequency sinusoidal rotations is that there is decreased gain and increased face lead. Um, during step changes in angular velocity, there is decreased gain and reduced time constant. The low-frequency rotational testing is more sensitive in assessing the early stages of vestibular loss, such as in ototoxicity, whereas the high-frequency testing may not detect these early changes. Another physiologic test that is being used to assess for BVH is caloric testing. Since rotary, rotary chair testing is not widely available, caloric testing can assess for um, BVH. Um, caloric testing actually correlates very well with low-frequency rotational testing, but not with high-frequency rotational testing. So BVH typically presents with um, less than 20 degrees per second, second summation of all irrigation. There are limitations to calorics, however. Those who have mild to moderate BVH may be missed, and caloric testing has also been a source of false positives 
because the test is susceptible to um, anatomical factors if the person has a small ear canal or if there's um, an excessive earwax buildup, those factors may um, confound the results of the caloric testing. Um, another thing with caloric testing, there has been no consensus on a range of responses or nystagmus required for the diagnosis of EVH during caloric testing. So there are a group of authors who, or a group of researchers who have been proposing guidelines for the diagnosis of BVH. They propose that the diagnosis should be made based on a combination of lab testing, which is caloric rotary chair tests, clinical testing according to um, head impulse tests or the dynamic visual acuity test, and patient symptoms related to disequilibrium and oscillopsia. Um, this combination then accounts for the limitations for these various various tests in making the diagnosis more definite. Um, mm -hmm. I was going to say, I'm very lucky in my own practice to work with some very uh, skilled audiologists who certainly recognize some of the limitations of their testing and they're always apt to say, even if a test comes back positive, make sure to have a clinical corollary to confirm the findings, making sure that it goes along with the clinical exam and also those patient's symptoms. I think that's very important. Yes, I totally agree with that. And I sometimes find um, caloric tests that do not match the clinical tests. So I usually have a conversation with the doctor or the audiologist to just untangle some of those um, confounding um, findings. Um, the other lab tests that can be used or yeah, lab tests would be uh, computerized dynamic posturography. It is sensitive to BVH, but it's not specific to this condition. Um, vestibular evoked myogenic potentials or VEMPs for secular function can also be used. It is less commonly done though, but it looks at um, the extent of the vestibulopathy, particularly looking at inferior vestibular nerve function. It is good information to have um, the, the, the VEMP results because it gives us an idea on, on the extent of the um, BVH. Typically BVH um, affects the superior vestibular nerve and it spares the inferior vestibular nerve and if this is the finding then it's, it's, it's a, it, it helps us in prognosticating um, outcomes because usually those who have, who have preserved inferior vestibular nerve have better outcomes. Um, if there is any doubt of central involvement, an MRI or a CT scan is still indicated and for those who are complaining of um, hearing loss, um, a basic audiogram is still um, indicated. Yeah, and I think uh, stand, pretty standard, at least the patients that I see, is everyone has an audiogram um, off the top. Off the top. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the PT exam findings, if we're suspicious of a BVH, um, what, what PT exam items should we perform and what would, what would be the common findings? So the main ones that are related for, are related to BVH are the, the head impulse tests and the uh, dynamic visual acuity test. So for the head impulse test, the, the, the finding would be that the patient would have to perform corrective saccades when the head is thrusted to both right and left directions. And for the dy dynamic visual acuity test, um, we usually find a five-line difference in um, 
visual acuity comparing stationary head position versus um, head moving um, conditions. Okay. Um, and what would you find, you know, we talked, you had mentioned the idea of posturography, and for those who are lucky to have a neurocom, um, that's great, but for a lot of people I know they're using the modified SIT-SIB or the SIT-SIB test. On what conditions would you expect the a patient with bilateral hypofunction to really have a difficult time maintaining their balance? So for the, for the SIT-SIB, it's usually conditions five and six that are related to vestibular function. And actually, condition five correlates pretty well with um, this, the computerized dynamic posturography. So I would typically use for the balance exam, um, I would use the, uh, the SIT-SIB um, to, to assess for postural um, control. And I would assume if you're using the modified SIT-SIB, that would be condition four you would expect to them to have significant problems with. Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, so I think this is a um, very common issue that I run into in my practice. When you think of uh, classic bilateral hypofunction and the idea of dizziness, if the loss is completely equal, theoretically the patient should not have dizziness because as we all know dizziness arises from an imbalance in one side to the other with the vestibular system. But I do find patients who have testable hypofunction that do have dizziness. So what is this idea with bilateral hypofunction and dizziness? Is it there? Is it not? What might cause dizziness in these patients? And then what physical therapy treatments would be effective to treat this dizziness? Yes, that's right. Um, dizziness is not usually, if, if there is symmetrical loss of um, both vestibular um, and organs, there shouldn't be any um, dizziness. However, dizziness can still present, um, especially in those who have asymmetric loss or in certain um, clinical phenotypes of BVH. Um, for instance, idiopathic BVH can present with um, dizziness. And um, for the treatment, I will use habituation paradigms to address the, uh, the, the dizziness component. So that is exposing them to repeated stimuli. I may also use the motion sensitivity questionnaire as a guide in prescribing which motions should be um, part of the program of habituation. Um, and would you do any VOR exercises or ocular motor exercises? Uh, most definitely. Uh, I'll, I'll be uh, giving them adaptation exercises for gaze stabilization um, because that allows them to, to, to generate um, different strategies, um, whether it's pre-coding of automatic gaze or it, it also allows for um, central compensation. Um, where the, uh, the brain pays more attention to the, uh, the remaining vestibular sense, um, upregulating those, um, th th that input. Mm -hmm. um, I'll also be giving them substitution exercises, um, and that may be uh, saccadic eye movements between two targets or using remember targets um, to amplify the proprioceptive input on the neck relative to head position. Okay. Um, and besides some of the habituation exercises and um, the ocular motor exercises that we've talked about, what are some other treatment options for patients with hypofunction, bilateral hypofunction? Um, another exercise or ocular motor exercise that I'd be giving them is um, optokinetic um, exercises. Um, it has been shown in the literature that 
exposing the patient to repeated optokinetic stimuli can improve the regularity of their optokinetic nystagmus responses. Um, I'll also be giving them um, exercises that are going to provide them with um, a condition wherein they would be forced to use different sensory, in, sensory information, for instance, walking or walking exercises or postural exercises in um, compromised sensory contexts, standing on a foam, walking in tandem, walking and performing um, head movements, um, those types of exercises. Definitely, and it's all about, you know, trying to boost up some of the remaining somatosensory information. Like I tell my patients that, you know, I want your somatosensory system to try and work a little bit better, work a little bit sharper, to help to take over for maybe the vestibular system that's not working as well. That's right. Um, and in terms of any, any other treatment options before we move on to outcomes? I think there's another one which is also um, important to integrate in, in vestibular training is dual task training. Um, this is the concept that um, there's only so much attention that we can focus on um, a particular task. Now if a, if a person with BVH is so focused on maintaining balance, they may be um, unsteady when they're performing other tasks. So dual task training um, allows them to be able to um, divide their attention effectively and not compromise their, their stability, hence re reducing the, uh, the, the risk for falling. Yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, I know not only my bilateral patients, but um, a lot of my vestibular patients complain of significant fatigue. And I think a lot of the fatigue comes from the fact that these are functions that were once automatic, but now they're dividing or um, paying a lot of attention to these functions and using up a lot of their energy and we don't have this unlimited amount of brain power and energy so it really does speak to the um, effects and benefits of dual task training. That's right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the outcomes and what other comorbidities uh, may significantly impact PT so that we know how to um, a plan and do our prognosis and write our goal setting. And if you don't mind, really quick, I want to share the one case that I had in my past that um, is just sort of my classic um, bilateral hypofunction case. It was a woman who came to me and she, on initial evaluation, she was in her mid-60s. I mean, and she was hunched over a walker and, you know, relying very, very heavily on that walker. And the um, a note I had gotten from the physicians was that she had a, she had a history of lung cancer and the doctors had given her cisplatin as a chemotherapy agent. Mm. Well, the doctors had unfortunately failed to do a sensory screen because the patient also had a history of diabetes and she had significant peripheral neuropathy. And either they had failed to do the sensory screen um, and failed to pick it up or cisplatin must have been the only chemotherapy agent to treat her. So they did this, so they gave her the cisplatin and she ended up with a complete bilateral loss. So okay. it really put her at a significant balance problem. And I just remember her looking up at me and, and you know, when I told her, I, you know, I think this is where the balance is causing, coming from and this is why. And she looked up at me and she said, 
why would the doctors give me this drug if they knew this is what would happen? And I said, well, you know, I said, I, you know, the doctors were probably trying to save their life, and I don't know if there were any other chemotherapy options. That's definitely not my area of expertise. Um, but, I mean, uh, the outcomes with her, I always use her as sort of my poster child. I mean, she was in her mid to late 60s, a little bit overweight, you know, probably like I would say average to fair health status, history of lung cancer. She had significant mm -hmm. peripheral neuropathy along with complete um, loss, and she ended up, um, at the end of therapy, she came to me on a walker, using it all the time, very reliant on it. By the end, she was using a cane to walk around the community and walking around her house without an assistive device, and had returned to all of her daily activities. So, I mean, I was just so impressed by how she was um, able to improve, and I use her as my poster child of, they, you know, she, was she perfect outside her house? No, but she was very, very functional. So what well, are some of the expected outcomes, and other than peripheral neuropathy, what other comorbidities will impact the hypofunction? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good case study. Um, the other comorbidities that can influence um, outcomes is, well, if, if someone has um, impairment, with, impairment with the other sensory organs, for, for instance, vision, vision, um, patients with bilateral hypofunction are very reliant on vision. And if, and if someone has um, visual impairments, that can definitely hamper their um, recovery. So generally, um, patients with BVH, um, they typically recover their skills over several months, to up, to, up to two years. However, as you have said, returning back to normal function is not a, uh, a realistic expectation for, for some, especially those who have severe BVH. Um, poor prognosis are, poor prognosis for those who have other comorbidities, including um, those with visual or proprioceptive, proprioceptive um, deficits. Okay, and um, so any other final thoughts on anything that we've talked about or any other thoughts and insights out there for the therapist treating these patients? I think treating BVH patients can be really challenging and complex, and um, some of the older literature would, would indicate that these patients have poor prognosis. Um, it might be true, but therapists who are working with these patients should not be, should not be discouraged in you know, expecting them to achieve um, more functional goals because these patients are capable of um, modif either modifying behavior or performing central compensation to, to assist in the vestibular um, dysfunction. Yeah, and I always say it, you know, when I'm telling my students about the expected prognosis is it really depends on what the function of the patient was before. If the patient, say, um, was something like, um, I don't know, like a high-level activity, maybe like uh, riding a horse or, or um, racing bikes, I mean, that might be unrealistic. But if they right. did like fitness walking or swimming, that that's a more realistic mm -hmm. thing. That's right. And I just want to bring up some of the, uh, the findings um, from different studies that have looked at the effect of vestibular rehab on persons with BVH. So we can expect that there would be improved gait. Um, Krebs in 93 found that there, that there was a reduction in double support time in those who got therapy and an 8% increase in gait speed and stair climbing. Um, there was also improved um, locomotor stability. There was reduced mediolateral sway. For those who receive vestibular rehab, we can also imp expect improved um, gaze stability. Um, 
and an improvement in optokinetic um, nystagmus for those who get specific training for optokinetic um, exercises. So I think those are um, good things to remember or good things to think about when we're um, trying to um, think about outcomes for um, patients who have BVH. Okay, great. Any other uh, final thoughts or insights? I think that's about it. Okay. Francino, thank you really uh, very much. I definitely learned a lot today, and I know this information is going to be very useful for the therapists out there. Thanks so much, Rachel. Okay, great. And stay tuned, everyone. I'm sure the new year will bring lots of new podcasts. Thank you. Goodbye.